This episode of Outlines contains descriptions of a crime which some may find distressing. So listener discretion is advised. It was 11pm on Tuesday the 10th of March 1970 and Molly and Derek Long were in bed at their home in Aylsham, Norfolk but they were not yet asleep. Instead, they lay together in the dark and listened to the chime of the church clock. They knew that by now their 18-year-old daughter Susan would be on the bus home from the city of Norwich, where she had spent the evening dancing at the gala ballroom with her boyfriend Brian Tungate. She would arrive back at around 11.14 and her walk home from the bus stop in Aylsham Marketplace would take precisely seven minutes. Molly would later tell the papers that they could never get to sleep until they knew that Susan was home safely. This routine had taken place every Tuesday for the last four months, and they had no reason to suspect that this night would be any different. Except that soon it was half past the hour, and they waited expectantly for the turn of Susan's key in the lock, but it did not come. The church clock struck twelve, and Derek and Molly knew instinctively that something was wrong. Concerned that the bus had broken down, Derek dressed hastily and cycled the short route from their home in Sir William's Lane to the marketplace. He soon discovered that the bus did arrive on time, and by 1am the Longs had placed a call to the police asking them to check if Susan had been one of the passengers. She had. It was then that the couple began to fear the worst, though there was little that could be done while it was still dark, and so instead they stayed awake and worried, and waited for the first light to dawn. At just past 5.15 in the morning, in the area known as Spratt's Green, just half a mile away from the Long's home on a remote and unnamed lane, 33-year-old milkman James Bacon was frantically rousing the residents of Stapleton Farm. When he did so, he immediately telephoned the police. He told them that as he rounded a bend just over the Aylsham to Cottishall Railway Bridge, he had been forced to bring his vehicle to a sudden stop. There, lying face down in a pool of water, and only inches from the wheels of his milk float, was the body of a dark-haired young woman. James did not get out of the float. There was no point. Despite his fear, he could still tell immediately that the woman was dead. As Police Sergeant David Engeldow arrived at the scene, he observed that there had obviously been a struggle, The strap of the woman's handbag was still wound around her neck and her left shoe was missing. Examinations would later determine that she had been sexually assaulted and then strangled. Half a mile away from the scene, as the first light dawned on Aylsham, Derek Long and his brother-in-law Thomas began their search for Susan, but quickly police delivered the bad news. They believed that she had already been found. After the body at Spratt's Green was taken to St Michael's Hospital in Aylsham, it would be left to Derek to formally identify it as that of his daughter. Eleven years later, Derek Long would die of cancer. His wife Molly died in 2014 at the age of 89, and despite the development of a full DNA profile of her killer, the man who murdered their only child would never be brought to justice. I'm Jess Carter, and this is the Outlines podcast.
Susan Margaret Long was born on the 19th of July 1951 in Norwich. She would spend the 18 years of her life living in the historic market town of Aylsham. Born into an actively Christian family, Susan was baptised at St Michael's, the local parish church, and later became a Sunday school teacher there. After her mother Molly died, she would leave almost £70,000 to the church, and now, if you wish to attend the parish's Sunday school, you will do so in the Molly Long community room. Susan's life was by all accounts filled with laughter and happiness. Her mother was a canteen worker at St Michael's Hospital and Aylsham High School, while her father worked as a joiner. At the age of 16, Susan went to work at the Norwich Union offices in the addressograph department. I'll admit, I had to look up what an addressograph is, and I found that it's a machine with which you print addresses onto envelopes. Later, a co-worker would tell the newspapers that Susan had been a conscientious worker with a lot of friends. From reports, it's not difficult to tell that she was growing into a striking-looking woman. She stood at five foot ten, with wavy dark brown hair and hazel eyes. I trawled through photographs, some black and white in newspapers, and others grainy colour holiday snaps. I noticed that while she smiles in all of the photographs, it's when that smile hits her eyes that her face transforms and she becomes truly beautiful. In most of the pictures, there is an air of reserve to her face and posture. In one, from a family holiday in Lowestoft, she sits demurely on a low, rough brick wall. She is wearing a black miniskirt, white top and light blue cardigan. Her hands rest, crossed on one thigh, and she half smiles into the camera, her face turning slightly from the bright sun, her eyes two dark holes in the shadow of her ear-length hair. Susan was happy in her job and had an active social life. She had recently bought her own car, a six-year-old Vauxhall Viva, and four months before her death, she and 18-year-old Brian Tungate had formed their relationship. Brian lived on the outskirts of Norwich and worked as an apprentice gas fitter. In a newspaper interview, he would say of Susan, she loved a gay life. She was a gay person and always happy and smiling. We had only known each other for four months, but she was the girl for me. I know I am only 18 years old and she was just as young, but we seemed to hit it off very well. I had other girlfriends, but this was serious with Susan. Despite their relatively short relationship, they had already pledged to become engaged within the year, and the couple made sure to see each other four times a week, on a Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday. Susan travelled by bus to Norwich for work, and afterwards would visit Brian, catching the 10.30 bus back to Aylsham. On the evening of Tuesday the 10th of March 1970, the couple had dinner at Brian's house in Norwich, before heading to the gala ballroom on St Stephen's Street to spend the evening dancing. After the dance, Brian escorted her to the bus stop in Surrey Street, an eight-minute walk away. Police could never ascertain whether it was known on the part of her murderer that this was to be the last time that Susan would use public transport. Her season ticket ran out that day, and her plan was to begin driving to work in her newly purchased car. After her death, the car would remain idle in a neighbour's garage. The couple kissed goodnight, and at around 10.25pm, Brian watched Susan board the number 10 bus to Aylsham. 
She was dressed in a mini-length black coat with silver buttons and black gloves, which had holes at the knuckles with small gold metal ornaments. She carried only a black leather-type bag and wore blue slingback-style shoes in a size 6. On her wrist was a blue and white bracelet with gold filigree effect. This bracelet has never been found. As the bus departed the stop, she turned and waved to Brian. This was the last time he would see her. The journey home was by all reports uneventful. There were about 14 passengers on the bus, most of them regulars. Sitting directly in front of Susan was Wendy Goodchild and her friend Suzanne. Wendy remembered that despite this, when the bus pulled into Aylsham at 11.10, four minutes before schedule, Susan would exit the bus before them, bumping into Suzanne as she passed her by. Her normal route, the seven-minute walk to her home, would have taken her along Red Lion Street and White Hart Street before she reached Sir William's Lane. Wendy, who took the same path down Red Lion Street, told reporters that she could not remember seeing Susan after they left the bus. As such, these are her last known movements. After this, we can only speculate on the events of that evening. Her mother Molly was quoted as saying that the only place Susan might have accepted a lift was if she was in town still, because there would be no point in doing so if she were closer to home. She thought that perhaps the person or persons who killed her might have been someone who knew she made a habit of travelling on the number 10 bus four nights a week. She then went on to say, it was either that or she was forced into a car by a gang. It seems certain that Susan would not have accepted a lift with a stranger, and indeed Molly said that she was a sensible girl who had always known the dangers if she allowed herself to be picked up. As a matter of fact... Just two or three weeks previously, she had refused an offer of a lift from a stranger when walking from a bus stop in All Saints Green, Norwich, to the Surrey Street station. If Susan had not accepted a lift or taken her normal route home, the only other option would have been to take a shortcut by cutting across a recreation ground between Burr Road and Sir William's Lane, although it seemed unlikely. A local resident told the Eastern Daily Press that her husband was exercising their dog on the recreation ground at about 11.30 on the Tuesday evening, but heard and saw nothing suspicious. In the 1980s, Maurice Mawson, the man who later took charge of the case, would say, There was always a strong possibility that as Susan started to walk home from Elsham Marketplace, she was offered a lift by someone she knew. It is possible that the person who gave her that lift had an ulterior motive which went wrong, and as a result, she met her death. This theory must have been bolstered by the discovery of a speck of paint no bigger than a pinhead, which was found on Susan's tights. Laboratory examinations revealed that the paint was from a grey Ford saloon car, built between 1959 and 1961, and later resprayed metallic maroon while there is much about Susan's last movement that is left unanswered. We can be sure that sometime in the last six hours between her exiting the bus and the discovery of her body, she had been transported to that unnamed road near Spratt's Green, and there, or nearby, according to Detective Chief Superintendent John Cass, the man in charge of the investigation, she was subjected to a sexual assault and had probably fought with her killer. Mr Cass told a press conference that in defending herself, Susan might have been able to inflict bruises or injuries on her attacker, 
and suggested that perhaps he would be suffering from a black eye or severe redness. We know that as well as the paint flecks on her tights, flesh was discovered underneath her fingernails. On her clothes was the blood of another person and semen was found at the scene. Forensic experts determined that the blood came from a rare blood group, APGM2 secreta, which is shared by only four out of every hundred of the population. In the coming months, thousands of local men would be tested, but no match would be found. In 2004, scientists were able to retrieve a DNA profile from the evidence, but again, there would be no matches, and it appears as if whoever is responsible for Susan Long's sexual assault and strangulation, they have never been arrested or convicted on any offence. The belief amongst residents of Aylsham was that the person responsible lived among them. This is echoed in a quote from Susan's father, who said, She was so regular catching the last bus on a Tuesday night. Too regular. It seems too much of a coincidence that the murder happened the very last night she caught the bus. It was the last chance the murderer had to get her on her own as she walked home in the dark, and he took it. In the days which followed the discovery of Susan's body, Overseen by DCS John Cass of Scotland Yard and DCS Reginald Lester, head of the Norfolk CID, the police began to investigate the disparate facts of March 10th, 1970. At the place where Susan's body was found, officers armed with sticks searched the railway line, embankments, fields and lanes. Frogmen were dispatched to investigate the waterways surrounding the scene and uniformed officers combed the area near the site of the old M&GN railway station alongside the main Aylsham Road. Tracker dogs and their handlers were called in, and post office engineers were asked to put in four emergency telephone lines at Aylsham Police Station. It was decided that police would quiz everyone in Aylsham to account for their movements, believing that the person responsible was probably local to the area. This assumption seems to have been based on the fact that Susan's body was found in a lane which local people knew well, but which strangers probably wouldn't have known about. Householders and shopkeepers were asked where they were on the night that Susan was murdered, if they owned a car, whether they knew Susan, and if so, what they knew about her. Her colleagues at the Norwich Union Insurance Offices were questioned in a specially set-aside interview room and were told that they were not to speak to reporters about what had occurred. At 10.30pm the next evening, as Susan's parents wrapped themselves tight in blankets in the living room of their home and prepared for another sleepless night, Detective David Collins boarded the number 10 bus between Norwich and Aylsham. His instruction was to question passengers on their way. An officer is quoted as saying, He was trying to find out if anyone who might have travelled on the bus last night saw the girl or anyone with her. There are a number of regular travellers on this route, and we hope we might be able to find some clues. It was learned from Wendy Goodchild, who had been seated in front of Susan on her journey home, that as she and her friend Suzanne got off the bus, they saw a Ford Anglia estate car parked in the marketplace and heard the beep of its horn though she was unable to say whether or not there was a connection between Susan and the car. Later, it was reported that police wished to trace two young men who were seen in a green Ford Anglia estate, talking to young women the week before the murder. They had been spotted on either Tuesday, March 3rd or Thursday, March 5th, 
and it is unclear as to whether they were ever traced. It was also discovered that on Tuesday evening, a person had tapped on a window of the number 10 bus as it was leaving the Surrey Street station at 10.25. This person had apparently driven up to the stop in a mini and was later cleared of involvement in the case. A third car, a light-coloured Morris, was taken into the yard at the former drill hall at Corston Road where police were based. The car had both number plates covered, one by a piece of cardboard and the other by canvas. A police spokesman said that it was one of a number of vehicles which were being checked. Other than these facts, we know very little about the investigation into Susan's death. There are a few briefly mentioned details. A scream was heard in the town late on the Tuesday evening. At around 12.30 on the Wednesday morning, the lights of a car were seen in the area of the Muckland Sewage Works. From there, I can find nothing more to report, until 18 months later, when an anonymous letter was received by Norfolk Police. Written by a woman, the note began, I couldn't tell you then. I was still living with my husband, but now I'm separated, I don't care. The letter has never been printed in full, but apparently it continued to tell how she and another man had been on the lane where Susan's body was discovered, when they had seen a person driving away at high speed. She said, That incident has preyed on my mind. He looked very frightened and in a terrible hurry. It was around 11.30pm. Police believed that the letter was real, though the description of the man was reportedly so good that they thought perhaps it could be an attempt to frame someone in particular for a murder he did not commit. Detectives appealed to find her, but she never came forward, and it's difficult to know whether the letter was a hoax, or if the woman and the man who was not her husband really were parked on that unnamed lover's lane at the time a murder was taking place. It's a bright and clear day in December of 2019 when I visit the scene of Susan's murder. I begin my drive in Elsham Marketplace. It's a quaint and friendly-looking square filled with old and boxy red-bricked buildings, typical of historic Norfolk towns. It's early on a Sunday morning, and only the local co-op is open. The drive from here to Susan's home takes me along Red Lion Street, right onto White Hart Street, and soon after right again onto Sir William's Lane. The journey is brief, no more than seven minutes on foot, and only a few in a car. The house in which she lived is semi-detached, and set back a little way from the road with a lumpy gravel drive. I take a quick Polaroid which shows a normal-looking red-bricked building with a few trees stripped bare of their leaves. There is nothing remarkable about the house on a road of identical-looking buildings. It's a typical, moderately old-fashioned Norfolk home, in a town that seems quiet and friendly. It is difficult to believe that any crime at all could be committed here, but nevertheless, there's something recognisable in the environment. I've seen it before on location drives the sleepy and semi-rural environments that seem to encourage a case to go unsolved. Locals suspect everyone, and yet they know no one who would seem capable of such a crime. I continue the half a mile or so to Burr Road and park up in a muddy and pitted lay-by. On foot, with the wind biting cold, I take the short walk to the unnamed road once described as a lover's lane on which Susan met her death. The hedges are tall around me, half-stripped for winter. I cross the hump of the railway bridge close to the location in 1970 where a blue and orange tent would be erected to hide Susan's body. And again, quite suddenly, I sense that I've seen this before. 
The place in which she was discovered, face down in a puddle, her handbag strap around her neck and her left shoe missing, is recognisable to me. I've been to so many rural spots just like this, in which bodies have once lain, that I'm overcome with a feeling of anger and emptiness. I don't want this to be the third murder I cover of a young woman killed as she walked home from a bus stop in the darkness, the second time a body has been found to be missing a shoe, the second Sunday school teacher, the sixth woman under the age of 20, the seventh strangulation of a woman. I don't want to look at the murder of Susan Long in the context of all the other crimes that have come before her. It has taken me nine months to write this episode, and in part... That is because for a long time I didn't know how to reconcile myself with the way I felt as I stood on that small, unnamed lane. Susan was her own person, and she deserves to have her story told. I wanted to see this murder as separate from those I had covered before, and yet I couldn't. Because in that moment something had shifted, and for a short while the people who had become victims of these crimes had ceased to feel like individuals. It's taken nine months to understand that this was not a failure on my part, but the natural reaction of a brain overloaded with facts of murder. It's difficult to tell you these things. I still have a feeling of guilt attached to the emotions I felt that day, and yet a part of me feels as if it's also important. I understand now. I know that I will never truly lose sight of the reason why I started writing outlines. First and foremost... This show is for the victims and their families, and so that these long unsolved crimes are not overlooked in the shadow of those which end neatly with a conviction and the unmasking of a perpetrator. I don't pretend to be immune to the pleasure of seeing listener statistics grow and reviews amass, but at the end of the day, this show is me at my desk, surrounded with old news reports of unsolved murders, trying to understand who could kill 18-year-old Susan Long. She was fun-loving, soon to be engaged and to begin her adult life. A young woman who was the only child of two parents who could never quite get to sleep until they heard the turn of her key in the door. Eleven years after the death of her husband, and 23 years after her daughter was killed, Molly Long gave an interview with a local newspaper. She told them, In my dreams, Susan is usually a little girl, full of smiles and laughter, and Derek is often with her. I don't dream about her murder, but I often think about it, wondering where and how her nightmare began on that awful night. The terrible thing is that we suspect everybody. If someone in the street turns away, perhaps to save us embarrassment, we wonder if they're hiding something. It's not fair on the local people. It's not fair on us. The memories still hurt, and they always will. It hurts when people talk of their grandchildren, when people are married, or when Susan's friends have children of their own. I hope whoever murdered Susan is tormented by what he did, and I simply want him to know I'm still here. I haven't forgotten. I'll always remember what he did to our beautiful daughter. Now that she is gone, this is an empty house. It's not a home anymore. Our lives revolved around Susan. We only live for one thing. For the murderer to be caught. This episode of Outlines was researched and written by Jess Carter, with audio production by Stuart Gardiner. The music was composed by Elias Hardy. <laughs>